You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 14th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Ian McLeod just clings on to his title as the UK's shortest serving Chancellor. You and the Chancellor designed this budget together. He has to go because of the fallout from it. How come you get to stay? Excuse the bluntness, Prime Minister, but given everything that has happened, what credibility do you have to continue governing? Will you apologise to your party? Former US President Donald Trump weighs up whether to provide the January 6th Congressional Committee with a grand finale and the always diverting question of what Elon Musk thinks he's doing. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, which means it's our mostly in-house daily, and among the Monocle staffers stranded on the roof as the last helicopter lifted off were Chris Lord, Andrew Tuck, Tom Webb and Paulina Morava. Plus, we'll invite the new statesman's Anoush Shikalian to decide whether British politics is currently merely turbulent or actually febrile, and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, I will be joined by a panel of Monocle's finest or at least most available contributors. But we will start in the UK, where Liz Truss remains Prime Minister. That is, as of this broadcast, if you're listening later, you're on your own. However, Kwasi Kwarteng does not remain Chancellor of the Exchequer. He has been sacked after 38 eventful days, making him the second shortest serving Chancellor in UK history. Although the title holder, Ian McLean, Cloud had the excuse of dying in office after a month on the job. Truss accompanied the announcement of Kwarteng's dismissal with a tyre-shredding U-turn on a key plank of her government's recent mini-budget. Corporation tax will now be hiked from 19% to 25%. Well, joining me now is Anoush Shakalian, Britain editor at The New Statesman. Um, Anoush, first of all, is there any possible interpretation of today's events other than this actually is all as mad as it looks? <laughs> um, well, I, to be honest, yes, it looks mad um, and it looks chaotic, but it's it's it, it was actually a bit of an inevitability. Um, there was no support either in the markets or among Tory MPs or indeed the British public for what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were trying to do to our economy. Um, and so there was only one way that they were going to try and fix this, and that's by one or both of them going. Um, you know, they've already U-turned on the most symbolic part of that quite radical plan for the economy, which was to cut taxes for those earning over £150,000. They've already U-turned on that. That didn't make that much difference. You know, there were still noises off in the party. The markets weren't reassured. So they had to do something a little bit more dramatic. So yes, it looks mad, but actually it's probably the only path she possibly could have chosen. Well, let's talk about the the recent... Well, let's talk about the now defenestrated Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. Where did this go wrong for him? Well, I think the issue was that they introduced this budget that was very radical, full of uncosted tax cuts. Um, and it just was too much for the markets who didn't really trust that they were going to deliver on the growth that they've been promising for the country. And that was because they didn't you know, allow the OBR, which is the organisation that kind of does the sums and works out what the government's plans are going to mean for the economy. They didn't let them do their usual report alongside the budget. Um, he sacked the 
top official at the Treasury. Um, and, you know, people think that that is a sign that there is kind of an attempt at ideological capture of the Treasury by the Chancellor. And it's supposed to be an impartial civil service. And so all of these checks and balances were kind of being cast aside in this very move fast and break things attitude that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss had. And so I think, you know, that that was a particular mistake, which meant that the markets were spooked. Tory MPs were very concerned. The British public, you know, suddenly felt that the Conservatives have lost their reputation for fiscal responsibility. And that meant that someone, you know, either Liz Truss or Kwasi Kwarteng, who were, who were very much behind this budget, had to go in the end. They tried to U-turn. Um, so they got rid of their most symbolic policy from that pu- budget, which was really controversial, which was a tax cut for those earning over £150,000. But that didn't work to reassure the markets and, and Conservative MPs were still furious. And so something more dramatic had to happen. So I think that's what did for Kwasi Kwarteng in the end. Well, the question that arises, of course, is to the extent whether this has also done for Liz Truss or put off the doing of Liz Truss. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Tory party is famous ruthless in its pursuit uh, and preservation of power. If it is thinking according to that tradition, what is the smart way forward? Do they stick with Listruss and hope her luck changes, or do they dump her as fast as possible, think, well, still at least two years to another election, that's a long time in politics, and by then perhaps this will all be forgotten about? Well, yes, those are the only two options for them. And I think there are a lot of Tory MPs who want to manoeuvre soon to try and get Liz Truss out of her position as well. I mean, we've seen that the markets haven't even been reassured by the Chancellor's sacking. She did this press conference where she looked very wooden. And there's been a lot of complaints since then within the party, privately behind the scenes. How do we get rid of her? Put someone else in. There's still two years to to an election. Maybe we can turn this round. Or if we can't turn it round, we can save some face and try and um, get that Conservative Party reputation back for some fiscal responsibility, which is the thing that, you know, they always rely on come election time over the Labour Party. And that's just been completely trashed by her premiership. So I do think, you know, if you were a sort of sensible Conservative MP who was worried about losing your seat in the next election, you probably would want someone else in charge. But the issue there is, which candidate do they unite around? Because that was the the problem with the last Conservative leadership uh, campaign, which was only over summer. And we've had so many prime ministers in the UK over the last few years. It does seem chaotic, but I do think the general public are sort of now used to it. So if I was a Conservative MP, I'd worry less about how it looks changing leaders and and worry more about who to change that leader to. But Because that right there is the practical difficulty, isn't it? Realistically, they can't put the country through another interminable leadership contest. They would have to unite around one person, not least to avoid the difficulty of having to put a choice to the small coterie of insane retired brigadiers that constitute the Conservative Party's membership. Does that that unity candidate actually exist? And if they do, who is it most likely to be? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there is absolutely no appetite within the Conservative Party to run another one of these quite ludicrous leadership elections, especially not the state that the country's in. And, you know, the very real anxiety that a lot of people are suffering at the moment in terms of their their own money, their own household budgets. Um, But yes, I mean, there, there is 
what we learnt over summer and from the Conservative MPs who put themselves up for the leadership election, there is no one candidate that the party unites around. Rishi Sunak was Liz Truss's uh, uh, opponent. He used to be Chancellor. He has a good reputation within the Conservative Party. But their support, MP support, wasn't enough to sell him to their own voter base. If they go for him now, you know, it does look a little bit like sloppy seconds, but maybe they feel that he is he is um, a safer pair of hands and we know that there is more support for him among MPs in the party than there was for trust. Um, having said that, you know, there are many other people who were seen as a safe pair of hands who have served in various cabinets, someone like Sajid Javid, who was health secretary, for example. Um, it's interesting that Liz Truss has brought Jeremy Hunt in, mm. who was another one of the leadership contenders um, as her chancellor, who you know lost in the very early stages of, of the campaign. He also lost against Boris Johnson as well. So maybe there, there, is, a, there is a feeling that having people in who, who have <laughs> previously been rejected is an okay thing to do. Um, I think they're looking for sort of established candidates at the moment rather than anyone new. Well, just finally and quickly then, we, we came into this noting that Kwasi Kwarteng is the UK's second shortest serving Chancellor. Liz Truss still has another daunting 81 days to go before she overhauls George Canning, who also died in <laughs> office, to avoid becoming the UK's shortest serving Prime Minister. Just quickly, do you think she can do it? I don't think that she can do it if the party behaves rationally. Um, and that, of course, is a question for another interview. <laughs> uh, that's a very, very big if to close on. Uh, Anoush Shekelian at the New Statesman, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24 and moving on now to the United States. Most of the attention being focused on the United States looming election day on November 8th is focused on the congressional midterm elections and not unreasonably. It is these that will determine whether or not the escalatingly weird Republican Party takes control of either or both houses. However, a number of important mayoral elections are also occurring, not the least of which is in Los Angeles, which will hold a runoff for City Hall on the date. One of the candidates is a billionaire real estate mogul with little previous political experience. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, we are joined from Los Angeles by Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. Um, Chris, first of all, uh, to that mayoral runoff, the polls of late are not looking terrific for Rick Caruso. Is, is it all over for him? I don't think it's all over, Andrew, no. And while the, there has been a big gap between him and the other candidate, which is Karen Bass, uh, that has narrowed in the last couple of weeks. And we, he's now behind, by the most recent poll, by about three percentage points. Now, I think as we get closer to that, it, I, I think we are probably going to see that widen a little bit. I think the, the problem that Rick Caruso has had is, as you mentioned, he is a billionaire property developer. And that doesn't quite sit well with a lot of Angelinos, where this is a this is a city with some real uh, inequalities. And I think that 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 fact of his uh, association with what he has done in the city, which is considerable, he's built several malls here. He has created a lot of jobs here. All that stuff at one point seemed to work. But he poured so much money into his visibility in, in his campaign that actually the, it, people basically got a bit sick of Caruso. You couldn't turn on YouTube without being hammered by uh, his uh, his claims of how bad homelessness was and how quickly he would turn it around overnight. Um, and I think that that's, that's really what's all happened. I think also you have a situation where I think here in Los Angeles, there's an increasing need for a unity candidate. I heard you just talking about that in the UK, and I think it's the same here. There are deep divisions here in Los Angeles that have been 
uh, exacerbated by COVID in terms of economic inequalities. But also just this week, we've had this extraordinary scandal where the head of the council, and the council in Los Angeles is very, very powerful. The mayor has, to some extent, some quite clipped powers, whereas the council really does uh, own and run quite a lot of the, the big departments here. The, the, the president of the council was, it was released a, a off, you know, what was supposed to be off record discussion in which she made a series of very, very horrible racist remarks. She's, a, a, she's from the Latin community here in Los Angeles. And it sparked this whole soul searching, I think, of a realization of just how divided LA is into its constituent ethnicities and, and communities. Uh, and I think therefore that does actually throw quite a good light on Karen Bass, who has been in many ways, a so, you know, she was a social worker for much of her career. She understands this city very well. And also, most importantly, she understands those divisions and probably has a good has a good remit to say she can bridge some of that. What has Karen Bass's positive pitch been, other than not being Rick Caruso? What has she laid out by way of actual policies that she thinks would address some of those issues? I think the main one, and this is what both of them have tied their the wagon, the horse that they've tied their wagon to, is is how to fix homelessness. And Rick Caruso, his big thing was, you know, declare a state of emergency, get federal funds. What exactly he would do with those funds is a bit unclear. Uh, with uh, with Karen Bass, she's actually set some quite clear targets of how many people she would get housed in her first year. And the implication of that that she's subsequently gone on to in recent debates, just one on, on Tuesday, is that that would be a long-term solution rather than a quick injection of cash, a load of buildings that suddenly happen, maybe tiny houses or tiny homes, as they call them here, uh, and, and, and a sort of slightly transient um, thing for the situation. I think the other thing that she is this page, and this is why this, coming back to this, this scandal that's rocked us in the last couple of days here, I think what she also has done is she's reminded people of how she's worked at a very street level in Los Angeles. You know, just on Tuesday in the mayoral debate, she was bringing things back to her experience in the 1990s, literally as a social worker on Broadway, working between the ganglands of the Crips and the Bloods and looking at how residents were suddenly swept into an extraordinary moment of crime in the 1990s here in Los Angeles around the Rodney King riot, all that terrible period for the city that some people increasingly say has echoes in in this time now where crime is up, homelessness is out of control and the streets are more dangerous than they've been for decades. So this kind of thing I think is is part of her pitch. She's saying, I can uh, understand these streets but also, she has the ear of Washington. Don't forget, she is a congresswoman, Karen Bass. She is the head of the Black Congressional Caucus in Washington. She understands Washington politics, and she can get the ear of those decision makers and those ultimately those purse string holders as well at a federal level. That I think, in a way, Eric Garcetti, the present mayor of Los Angeles, hasn't really been able to do. Well, on the subject of Washington, D.C., of course, the, the, the great big uh, grandstand finish from the, the most recent sitting of the, the January 6th committee was the issuing of this subpoena to President mm. Donald Trump to turn up and account for his behaviour on January 6th, 2021. Um, what's the latest on the likelihood of him actually showing? So it was an amazing moment on Thursday, Andrew, when that vote went through. A, you know, unanimous vote. All nine members of the January 6th committee said that he should be subpoenaed, i.e. Uh, compelled to give evidence in front of them about what happened on January the 6th last year when the Capitol building was stormed. 
What we do know, the initial reaction was, you know, oh, he's not going to go. How are you going to get him to, to take part in this? He'll never participate in this kind of thing. He's dismissed the whole thing as a witch hunt from the start. But actually, if you look today, there's a few little bit of reporting around that some of his people close to him are saying, actually, he might well do it. He might well appear. And there's two ways that that might unfold. He might appear and do the Fifth Amendment, which basically means you can't you, you have the right to not incriminate yourself. So we've seen this in, with other people in the January 6th committee. They go, they basically say nothing and then they leave and they exercise that Fifth Amendment. The other option at his disposal, which I think is probably the more likely scenario, is that he insists that the committee hear his evidence live, broadcast to the nation. And the problem with that is, and I think this is what was what probably makes people like Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, very nervous, is that they know he will inevitably turn it into the Trump show. Because overnight, he's written to Benny Thompson saying, you know, it, it starts about how peaceful he is and, uh, you know, how respectful he is of, of democracy and so on, and then launches into a full tirade in this letter from Donald Trump to the chair of the committee, calling it a conspiracy, uh, a witch hunt, uh, you know, all these various things about, you know, how wrong it is, drain the swamp, and how wrong the, the, the whole system of Washington is. The fear is, I think, if they give him, if they give him carte blanche to stand in, in in front of that committee and defend himself live on television, he can say anything he likes without being fact checked, without being, uh, in, you know, interrupted if you like. We've seen him do it before throughout his period in office, but also before in office when he was uh, just a candidate for the presidency. He can turn that camera to his uh, to his will. And that's a very dangerous proposition, I'd say. But just finally on that, though, is that not a dangerous proposition for Trump as well? Because could he not be storing himself up legal jeopardy, jeopardy rather, further down the track? Because he would be speaking under oath, would he not? He would. He would. But Andrew, here is a man with, with much litigation around him right now. <laughs> this is not the only thing, you know, in his inbox in terms of legal disputes and whatnot. I think the, the only thing I would say, if for those who do not like Donald Trump and do not want to see him return uh, in any way to the, the, Rep the Republican ticket or to indeed the presidency in 2024, is that in a way it heaps even more focus on what he's doing. And I think, you know, I think for a lot of Americans, it's become a bit difficult because they've seen two impeachments now. They've last seen a whole committee go through that subpoenaed the former president, uh, putting him in, you know, in a, in a, in a, a sort of group of, pres of former presidents like Richard Nixon, who are not remembered very fondly in this country. And yet still, it hasn't cut through to the voter. It hasn't really moved the needle of how most people who support Trump think about him and want to see him return. So... If there is an opportunity for him to go in front of those cameras and they play it well, then perhaps actually he could be faced in a situation because he realises under oath that he's going to play ball. And that, to some extent, does expose him, if you like, to those people who, who think he's a good person and think he's a good president and should be back in power and that they don't see that as, as being a good proposition anymore. But I do fear that if he had that, all the cameras on him and that full force of his ability to, to sort of perform will be very, very powerful indeed. Chris Lord in Los Angeles, thank you for joining us.
You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin has announced the imminent end of what he called a partial mobilisation, the dispatch of 300,000 debatably enthusiastic and haphazardly equipped reservists to shore up what President Putin still refers to as Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. In remarks likely to reassure few, he said that no further call-ups were planned in the foreseeable future. Since about February 24th, foreseeing the future has not been Putin's long suit. It also remains an open question whether or not Putin's mobilisation order has prompted more Russians to go to other countries than go to Ukraine. Well, I'm joined with more on how this looks from inside Russia by Monocle's Polina Morova. Um, Polina, you were able to go to Russia because you are Russian as recently as September. Um, can you give us some sort of sense of how this situation looks to people inside Russia, especially if they're getting their information from Russian media? Honestly, I was very surprised because going home was um, very scary. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what kind of, where conversations would go because basically from speaking with my friends and people I know before, it's two ways mostly. It's either you against it or you are out of it. And I think... Sadly, I discovered that it, the life in Russia was very normal, a bit too normal for what's going on in the rest of the world. And most of my friends, um, how the way I sensed it is that they are scared. Either they give up or they're scared because I remember in February there was so much going on and people were protesting and people were very active on social media despite the threats, whereas now I think because of this huge risk that people carry when expressing their opinion if it's the one of opposition it's very difficult to do anything and i think most people don't realize that they can they don't actually have to just be on the streets there's so many more things that they can be active through but as i said i looked at russia through this ugly lens of the war and of it not just being my home but being a country where people are ignorant and but then again i speak from a very privileged position of having mm. a life in europe or oh, sorry in london and um it's very difficult for me because i can't really empathize with either so, so is there quite a widespread thing of people just deciding that uh, if i ignore it it'll go away I think they just hope that it's going to be over soon and they don't believe that they are it depends on them as well because people in Russia they just never had any sort of participation in what the government does and I think I growing up it was not a question whether you are political or whether you're apolitical. People are just used to not having any voice. And I think now, all of a sudden, when everything is dependent on their voice, it's very strange and difficult mm. because it's almost as if they expect that now they have to do something, but they think, well, why do I need, what do I need to do now if I didn't do anything for the 30 years that I've been living here? The, the mobilisation, of course, does directly affect a great many people, not least, well, most obviously the 222,000 so far that President Putin says have been mobilised, and I guess that leaves about 78,000 still to be mobilised. Um, what's your sense since you returned of how that has uh, affected the way people are responding to this? Are you, are you hearing 
from your circle and especially about people your own age of people just deciding okay that's it and they're and trying to leave the country well first of all the numbers that are presented to the european media i think are very undermining the actual amount of people getting mobilized and i remember when it was first announced um someone told me that they that who have a con who has a contact in the government of Tatarstan where i'm from about that they had um, to collect 3,000 people by the next morning, so in one day. That and doesn't sound like they're being terribly picky about who they're no, collecting. No, and that's exactly, I think, they're very desperate and saying having this legal like legal description of a person who would be conscripted is total nonsense because ultimately someone I know works in a hospital told me how patients get subscripted from the hospital bed even being over 60 and it's actually ridiculous and there's obviously all these rumors about people um being trying to get subscripted at the protests and being arrested and then lawyers who actually go to um take the cases from the ones being arrested at the protest also are getting subscripted so it's 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 just surreal you know, that's probably a good word to describe what the last eight months have been like for somebody in your position. And we should emphasize that you also have family in Ukraine as well, a, a description which, of course, applies to many millions of people. Um, but for the last eight months, you will have seen here in London, the Western media uh, tying itself in not trying to understand Russia or trying to learn about Russia or trying to explain Russia. Um when you've been consuming that as an actual Russian, does it strike you that there's anything that we, we're we not understanding, that we don't get right, a point we keep missing? I think it's very difficult to translate the, this feeling of feeling responsible for what's happening, but then not turn it into guilt, because I think feeling guilty makes you very passive and... Whereas, I guess, feeling responsible prompts some sort of action. And most people in Russia, they are just lost. And I think what media maybe doesn't understand or wouldn't understand. I'm not talking about just media. I'm just talking about people mm. who don't have an insider vision or even a connection to any sort of Russian person. What you wouldn't understand is how it's just... It's really heavy, constantly it's really heavy and it's like always in the back of your head what is happening. All these images from Ukraine, all this data about how many people die, all these words that Zelensky says in every single speech he has, it's always, you carry it with you every single minute of your day but you can't do anything about it so it's just, that's, that's where I think I can empathize with people back home who are just living their best life because otherwise you just go crazy. Paulina Morova, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24, and it has been a big week for Elon Musk. But when isn't it? He kicked things off by saying Taiwan should become a special administrative zone of China, though judging by the response from Taiwan without asking any actual Taiwanese people first. A few miserable cynics further noted that Musk's comments came as Tesla, his company, hit a monthly record for sales in China. Since then, it has been revealed that Musk is being investigated by US federal authorities 
authorities regarding the interminable saga of his threats to buy social media tyre fire Twitter, and SpaceX. His space company has announced that it can and or will no longer fund Starlink Internet in Ukraine. Well, joining me in the studio now is Monocle's deputy head of radio and resident Musk expert, Muskologist, if you will, Tom Webb. Um, Tom, let's start with Starlink. Do we understand what Musk is playing at there? I realise that's basically the same question I could just apply to all these things, but with Starlink in particular, what is he doing? Because it has been incredibly important to Ukraine up until this point. Hi, Andrew. Yes. Yeah. So to really understand what has been going on today, we must first go back to March of this year, a period in which uh, Elon Musk was referred to as Saint Elon uh, (laughs) by the Ukrainian military. Now, the reason is Starlink. Uh, This is his satellite communication system that has kept many Ukrainians online, not least the military. Uh, We've also seen the president's many video addresses, which lives on it, um, despite the countless power outages that uh, Russia attacks on the country. internet structure uh, has been occurring. Um, So since the start of the full-scale invasion, uh, Ukraine has received more than 20,000 Starlink terminals without having to pay this monthly subscription fee, which is $60. So fast forward to today, um, Elon Musk SpaceX has announced that it cannot afford to continue to donate this satellite internet to the country. So he tweeted this morning uh, that this is not simply the cost of the terminals. Uh, they also have to create, launch, maintain, replenish, uh, and also create ground stations pay for access to the internet via gateways as well as defend against cyber attacks and jammings and all of this in his words are getting harder burn is approaching 20 million dollars a month so the solution spacex wants the u.s government to pick the bill Um, however uh, some in ukraine don't think this decision is purely about the money because in another twist this announcement today follows Mm. a um, highly controversial tweet from elon earlier this month that suggested ukraine should seek an end to the war by surrendering uh, territory to russia uh, and committing to remain neutral Um, so He is no stranger to putting his foot in it with bizarre and poorly researched interventions, (laughs) um, suggesting to build a miniature submarine for the Thai cave rescue is one that comes to mind. But that doesn't mean that it's thickened his skin to the criticism that it generates. Um, Because the Ukrainian government understandably reacted so badly to this intervention, including one ambassador who suggested, and I'm removing some of the colourful language here, that no Ukrainian will ever buy his cars, uh, many believe Musk's threats to have draw the Starlink was fueled by his ill feeling to that particular comment and the general decline of his popularity in the country. It it is interesting you say that because we have seen in that context uh, within the last couple of hours what looks like an attempt to mend some fences here from Mikhailo Podolyak, who is an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, He has tweeted, like it or not, Elon Musk helped us survive the most critical moments of the war. Business has the right to its own strategies. Ukraine will find a solution to keep Starlink working, and we expect that the company will provide stable connection till the end of negotiations. It is really weird to think that a major land war could end up being decided on whether or not one man is throwing a tantrum at one country ministers. 
Yeah, and as uh, we look into Starlink, there are accusations that uh, it's not simply Musk that's funding it. Britain, France, Germany are involved. So it's becoming more geopolitics rather than simply one man and one company. Well, let's look at the Twitter thing. Um, Basically, is he doing this or is he not doing this? Or does he even know if he's doing it? (laughs) Yeah. So with Twitter, uh, because nothing is simple in the world of Elon Musk, we then again must rewind once more, this time to April of this year, when he first offered to purchase Twitter, and that was for $43 billion, uh, after previously acquiring 9% of the company's stock. Three months later, he announced his intention to terminate the acquisition, uh, stating that Twitter had breached their agreement by refusing to crack down on spam bot accounts. And then in response, uh, Twitter's stock fell by 11% the next day, and the company filed a lawsuit against Musk in a trial that was actually due to begin this coming Monday. Um, so with the trial date looming, at the beginning of uh, this month, he changed his mind and decided to move forward with his proposed acquisition on the condition that Twitter dropped its lawsuit. So that's nice, clean and simple. But sadly not, uh, because today it has been reported that he is under a federal investigation, with Twitter saying that Musk attorneys had claimed investigative privilege when refusing to hand over documents it wanted. And then it also said it had requested that his attorneys produce their communications with federal authorities months ago, but they had not done so. Uh, And then in late September, his attorneys provided what is called a privilege log, identifying documents to be withheld. Now, if this all sounds horrible, complicated that's because it is um the court filing released today does not say what the exact focus of the probes are and which federal authorities are conducting them all we know is that musk has until october the 28th this year to close the acquisition uh, if the deal does not get done by then a trial date will be set for november uh, it is important to note this is not the first time he has been questioned regarding the acquisition uh, the u.s uh, securities and exchange commission previously asked him whether disclosure of his 9% Twitter stake was late and why it indicated he intended to be a passive shareholder. So he later refiled to show he was an active investor. Um, So you can bet on this one that uh, he will bat it away pretty quickly. Tom Webb, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, here in London, the Freeze Art Fair is up and running in Regent's Park and will be until Sunday. Among those who have already visited is Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and he joins me now in the studio, a Picasso under one arm. Um, Andrew, all jokes aside, you don't have your Picasso with you. That would be ridiculous. It is is safely locked somewhere else in the building. Um, Did you actually buy anything at Freeze this year? Uh, I didn't buy anything. Uh, the, but the funny thing is, it is a strange event because on, on you could go there just to see incredible works of art. Mm. But actually, most things are nicely wall-sized. And there is, a, there is certainly a very large contingent who are eyeing up pieces for one or other house or to put in storage before they go into one or other house. So it's, it is a retail event. You know, it's, of course, it's... You know, uh, and ex- exposure to great artists, past and present, 
but it is a retail event. So it is a shopping experience as well. I mean, for those who haven't been before, can you give us some sense of, of the scale of it? What what do you actually see when you go to Freeze? How is it set up? So it's, it's two exhibition centres pop, that pop up in Regent's Park here in London. One is for art from now contemporary art but the the other is for what's what's called freeze masters which is anything you you could find roman statuary you could find old prints from london from hundreds of years ago they even had a a dinosaur for sale which an an actual dinosaur an actual dinosaur that sold very quickly for a a, a million pounds (laughs) and uh they that the, the freeze masters runs through to as you that's where you'd find your picasso that's where you'd find your rothko that's where you you'll find uh flemish masters so the two have different atmospheres but both to be honest are kind of glorious the 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 the, the, the freeze masters is where you see a slightly older crowd but a lot of money and the the the, the, the contemporary art fair is full of money but a, a bit of a funkier crowd a, a, a crazier trainer or two on on foot <laughs> so aside from the dinosaur on which you were obviously narrowly outbid uh, what else struck you as highlights well what's interesting is just to see wh- where the market is and you know that it was a buzz you know, so everyone you spoke to was was saying that they had had you know extraordinary first days many of the people i spoke to on stand said that actually everything is just about sold in the first two or three hours. Now, some of that is done, it's, it's like the, when you go to these, you know, I don't know, uh, fairs for aviation, that many of the deals have been cooked up a little mm-hmm. bit in advance. But in fact, a lot of money had gone through there very quickly. Now, one of the concerns is, is that because the, the pound is so weak that actually it's just a bit of a bargain shop, for, for example, for Americans coming here with dollars in, in their pockets. But, there was a, an exuberance about the fair this year, that, and I think that everybody I spoke to just said, look, things have just sold very, very, very fast. But I think the trouble is it's, it's, it is overwhelming. There's so much visual art. And when, when I went around, you know, I, I began to speak to one or two gallerists, and there's, there's a, a very nice gallery actually from up in Scotland called um, the Ingleby Gallery. And I was speaking to Florence Ingleby, and I said, "What? Well, you know, just tell me what you're showing." And she she highlighted a, a little picture that was no bigger than a saucer, and it's by a, a guy called Frank Walter, who's a, who was a bit of an outsider artist, an Antiguan, uh, uh, a man of color, who was one of the first people to of color to run a, a sugar plantation in Antigua, and he was an artist. He died some years ago. And she explained that these little round pictures were from a, a trip he made back in the 50s to the UK. When he got to Liverpool, mm. they wouldn't let him get off the ship. So he went all the way back again. And there's, he's, there's a series now of pictures which are only now finding, making him famous after his death, which just views out of portholes. And it's only when you stop and you talk to the gallerist and you understand what the backstory of all these images are that really the, the, the smaller works shine because otherwise you're just, you're just distracted by the showier pieces. But then there are, you know, there's Andreas Gursky, you know, the famous photographer. There was some new works by him. And again, people need hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for those pieces. But I don't know, it's, it's, it is an incredible venue to enter. Is it still worth going to then, even if the million pound dinosaur is a bit out of reach, for those experiences and insights that you were talking about, actually getting to talk to the gallerists and learn about the works, even if you can't necessarily take them home with you? 
Yeah, so the, the beginning of the week is, it, it starts off with people who are the, the high end of the art world, the, the, the key buyers. And then it starts on Wednesday at two o'clock, they, they let in then the VIPs and it, it continues across the day. By this weekend, there are public tickets available. And I think that when many of the works are sold, the galleries oddly have a bit more time to talk to people mm. and explain what's going on. But whether you're interested in Tracy Emin, whether you're, they had a, a, an incredible collection of, or, or lineup rather, of Indian galleries showing here at Freeze, you know, I chatted to a, a, a really amazing uh, gallerist from uh, Argentina. You know, just fascinating to hear the stories and of behind the works and and how committed these people are to coming to london what's interesting is that uh, uh, something called paris plus takes place next week which is from the art basel teams so many of these people are going straight on to paris to continue this whirlwind of selling and also interesting that i had a side conversation with someone who was just like you realize even now, there is a lot of money that needs to park itself somewhere. That you know, with, when the world is going a bit crazy, people see art as a bet, but as a, a reasonably nice bet because you at least have something on your wall. And if you're still with some money from Russia, for example, the the, the rumor was that still Russians are, are parking their money in 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 through intermediaries in in art as well. Andrew Tuck, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. And finally, on today's show, it is time for our regular letter from New York City. And this week, Henry Reese Sheridan is travelling through time. I'm flying through the air above the city of Liege. It's the 13th century, and I'm four inches tall. My body is completely white, like a ghost's, and I'm carrying a cross. I'm the Christ child, and I'm on my way to the Annunciation to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Below me, I can see the rooftops of the medieval city. Churches, workshops and houses, horses and pedestrians making their way down cobbled streets. It's cold and windy up here, and to be completely honest, the cross is starting to feel a bit heavy. But then I see my destination down below. It's a comfortable, middle-class dwelling. I descend and perch on the ledge of one of the building's small circular windows. I peer through the glass into a dining room. Inside, the Virgin Mary is reading a prayer book. Across the room from her is the Archangel Gabriel. The Virgin Mary still hasn't noticed Gabriel yet. Gabe turns and sees me at the window. Now, he silently mouths. I follow his instruction and burst through the window with my cross. It's happening. We're about to tell Mary she's going to give birth to Jesus. But just as I get inside the room, I'm overcome by a high-pitched, continuous screeching sound. As the sound goes on, the room around me seems to disperse into thin air. Suddenly, I'm back in reality. It's not the 13th century. I'm not in liege, and I'm not even the tiny Christ child. Instead, it's 2022. I'm in the Met Cloisters Museum of Medieval Art in Upper Manhattan, and I'm a medium-sized Welsh man. I seem to have entered a fugue state while looking at a painting called the Annunciation Triptych, also known as the Marode Altarpiece. It's attributed to an early Netherlandish painter called Robert Campin, who they reckon worked on it with one of his assistants. 
The central panel of the triptych depicts one of the earliest known Annunciation scenes portrayed in a contemporary Northern European domestic setting. It seems my imagination was sucked into this detailed and surreal domestic scene, and that I began hallucinating that I was the tiny Christ child coming through the window in the top left of the painting. During my hallucination, I began leaning towards the painting, triggering an alarm meant to alert invigilators of museum-goers getting too close to the artefacts. That's what the screeching sound was. The Met Cloisters Museum is an amazing place. It houses around 5,000 pieces of medieval European art and architecture. Many of the architectural artefacts, including entire sections of medieval chapels, are integrated into the building itself. It feels like you're in an authentic but fantastical world that blends styles of art and architecture from throughout the medieval period. The museum's founders intended this immersive setting to, quote, stimulate imagination and create a receptive mood for enjoyment, unquote. My problem is that it stimulates my imagination too much. Luckily for me, the invigilator lets me off for the Annunciation incident with no more than a stern look. So much medieval art was about creating an immersive environment to put people into a particular cast of mind, often contemplation or awe, and also often in the service of religion. The Western worldview has been transformed since then, but we're still hell-bent on creating immersive environments. On Tuesday, Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, hosted a big conference. It was called MetaConnect, and its main purpose was to showcase the company's progress on the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg announced the metaverse a year ago in a video that was widely mocked for its awkwardness. It's an immersive online environment users can access using virtual reality headsets. Zuckerberg has called the metaverse his ultimate vision. Meta spent 10 billion US dollars on the metaverse in 2021 alone. But it still sucks. Meta's flagship virtual reality game, Horizon Worlds, is unpopular and buggy. Employees are disgruntled about how much of the company's resources are being dedicated to the metaverse. Some say the project seems to be driven more by Zuckerberg's ego than by sound business logic. What's the difference between Mark Zuckerberg and the medieval Europeans? Both used the most advanced technology at humankind's disposal to open up new possibilities for human experience. The main difference is that Zuckerberg's a lame nerd with bad taste, and the people who did the medieval stuff were probably cool with good taste and the ability to harness religious imagery to shed light on the human condition and trigger profound emotional and spiritual reactions. As far as I'm concerned, Zuckerberg can stick his metaverse up his newsfeed. When I want to be transported to another world, you'll find me in the Met Cloisters, taking in some of the best religious and secular art medieval Europe has to offer, all while eating an extraordinarily dry and expensive turkey sandwich purchased from the museum cafe.
That was Henry Ree Sheridan and his in-house chamber orchestra. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Chris Lord, Polina Morova, Tom Webb and Andrew Tuck. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Lillian Fawcett. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton with editing assistance by Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thank you.